Scott's going to be so sad. He missed out today. Mm-hmm. Hello, good people, and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It is time for your Friday afternoon podcast recording. I'm joined by Bailey Perkins. Hello, Bailey. Hello, Andy. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Scott is at work. He is not with us today. Uh, condolences to him. And we will uh, miss his re- restrained anger at uh, the current state of affairs in our fair state. And actually, today, Bailey, I think we're going to start with talking about not just that it's deadline week or that it was deadline week. Yesterday, Thursday, the 25th, was the first major milestone for the state legislature was the deadline by which bills had to be out of committee in the chamber of origin. Um, And so we'll talk about a few of those later on in the show, but first let's actually go up to the federal level. I don't have good federal. I don't have a good like federal uh, um, sound effect, but uh, we'll come up with one for future podcasts. (laughs) And, and then uh, we'll talk about, Well, let's start with COVID relief. We haven't talked about COVID in several weeks. Things are looking up. Numbers are going, numbers of cases are going down. Deaths are going down. Vaccinations are going up around the state and around the country. Um, But before we got going, we were talking about the American Rescue Plan. Bailey, what do you know about it? Yes. So the American Rescue Plan is President Biden's ideas of and priorities of how. Congress plus the executive branch can come together to get COVID relief to families, to businesses, um, to those who have been harmed and impacted in a lot of different ways. Um, We are still in a pandemic um, as well as an economic downturn. And so this is the Biden administration's uh, promise to do things like the stimulus payments to families to boost the um, child care tax credit, bolstering the EITC, um, putting more funds to restore and expand the Paycheck Protection Program for uh, businesses and small business um, relief Um, working on unemployment assistance and bolstering that, eviction relief. So there's a number of things that this bill would do to help more than 40 million, I mean, not 40 million, like millions and millions of Americans across the country, in addition to continued support around vaccine distributions and ensuring that states have the resources that they need to continue combating uh, coronavirus as we see light at the end of the tunnel. And the process that they're trying to use um, is called the budget reconciliation process to basically um, update what was passed um, in 2020 before uh, this new administration came into play. So it's a complicated process of what budget reconciliation means, but it gives them the ability to increase funding on a number of services and programs and do it within this fiscal year. Right. And I, you know, yesterday, day before, the Senate parliamentarian had ruled for their chamber that they could not include the $15 an hour increase in minimum wage or the increase to $15 an hour. And last I saw the house was planning to include that in theirs when they passed it, knowing that it might be stripped out in the Senate. Um, And we can, we should have a whole other episode about the filibuster because I feel like it is, everyone's talking about it and it is, I continually learn new things. In fact, last night, Scott sent me a, a tweet that he saw with someone named Jessica Ellis says, Every time I think I'm an educated adult who understands how Congress works, they're like, oh, dear, the wiki walker has declared a no Tuesday vote. We must adjourn till next week. And then I would never overrule the wiki walker, Senator Manchin told reporters, crap walking sideways from the chamber as is prescribed by no Tuesdays. And I was like, man, that's the 
that's the truth, right? Like there's a bunch of stuff about it that I don't get. And some of the, the procedures for Congress, which are just rules that they've adopted at some point, and particularly in the Senate, they don't like to change their rules because they feel they're high and mighty. And so, I, yeah, let's have an episode about the filibuster here in a few weeks. Absolutely. And even in the thought about constantly learning about process, uh, that's one of the reasons about Congress not having term limits, right? The only way that you really understand the systems and the strategies on what can or can't be done and the interpretations on procedure um, come from knowing it and knowing what happened 20 years ago and different things. And so we have lawmakers who have been around the block and have seen different iterations to be able to know different areas of, of parliamentary procedure. So I think that's an interesting facet on, you know, the conversation constantly, you know, comes up of whether Congress should have term limits. But one of the downsides to that is it takes a long time to, to learn all the ins and outs of a process. And it's definitely not going to happen within six years, probably not even 12. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Well, and the same thing happens at the state level where we do have term limits. Uh, a few years ago, there was a lot of scuttlebutt that members of the House were um, disenfranchised with or members of the house were not big fans of speaker McCall at the time. And there was all these rumors that someone, they were going to try to unseat him or something during the session. And apparently there's a parliamentary way to do it, but they said no one who's in, in office now knows how to do it. The last time it was done, you know, was before anyone else was here and it involved, you know, switching off someone's microphone so you could make a certain motion to table, blah, 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 blah. And uh, of course it didn't happen. I also suspect on some level that people just like the idea that this kind of thing is possible and all these rumors about some kind of um, like a secret rule, like a cheat code for how to do parliamentary procedures. So. And don't let anyone tell you listeners that it's about a partisan thing or one party is, you know, abusing their power. Anyone who's in the majority tries to strategize and navigate how they can make the things that they want to see happen, happen. So all the things that we're seeing and reading about and discussing and these different um, changes in procedure to, to get policy through the process is, is dependent upon who's in, in the driver's seat. Right. And, you know, it seems to me that the same people who were um, apparently epidemiological experts for a long time and then elections experts and then meteorolo meteorological experts are now also constitutional law and filibuster experts on social media. It's the same people. They are just so broad-based knowledge. It's really pretty exceptional. All right, well, let's uh, move on and talk about another piece of federal legislation that I expect will come into the full news cycle this next week. Uh, and listeners, we've mentioned this before. It's called the For the People Act. Uh, there's a bill in the House and in the Senate. This is in, in Congress in D.C. Um, it's H.R. 1 in the House and it's S. 1 in the Senate. Uh, and this bill would have some pretty far-reaching, um, not implications, but changes to uh, elections law. Um, it would eliminate gerrymandering, at least for congressional seats. Um, it would mandate automatic voter registration and online voter registration, um, civic education, helping teenagers register to vote, pre-register to vote. Um, and it's running kind of hand in hand with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And together, both those pieces of legislation would actually restore a significant portion, if not all, of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that has basically been rolled back or eliminated since that time. Um, you know, that was one of the sweeping pieces of legislation that was passed in the 60s um, to, well, to expand civil rights and to um, try to make the law, I won't say fair, we'll say more fair, right? Or at least more friendly um, to minorities and specifically black communities. And the fact that it has been systematically damaged, right? Or like pieces removed is um, a 
I don't know, a testament to the travesty of American government for the last 50 years, I guess. Uh, and so these would have really big consequences. One of the things I think is most interesting, this connects to the filibuster, right? Is that there have been a lot of smart people, Ezra Klein and others, if you guys follow them on the social medias, who have said, you know, at, at some point, it looks like Congress is going, to, or that the Senate is going to have to deal with the filibuster. And the decision isn't whether to nuke the filibuster, that is, do away with it or not. It's for what issue do you decide to do away with it? And the one that people keep going back to, and I think it's a good move, is like if you're gonna if you're gonna go to extreme measures, you do it for stuff that fixes the system for all voters, right? And the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act are those kinds of changes. This is the big, hairy, systems level, you know, small d democratic changes that we need. Well, and I'd add to the the timing of it is significant because we're seeing a lot of blowback and consequences at the state level from this past election cycle, from the narrative that there was cheating in the election, that the election was rigged and and all of these other narratives that float. And so we're seeing things like narrowing and limiting um, opportunities for early voting and narrowing timelines of who can get absentee ballots in different states. And and so all of these restrictions on the voting process um, make the timing of the For the People Act coming back into this cycle um, urgent. And so, because Andy and I were just talking about before the podcast started that Congress is going to tackle, well, they're, as we speak, they're tackling a COVID relief bill. And then next week, they're going to try to get to for the people. And then the following week, they're going to try to do uh, John Lewis for the people. I mean, the the John Lewis uh, legislation for the Voting Rights Act to ensure that um, those cornerstones are, are taken care of to ensure that the American people aren't disenfranchised. Because when we talk about civil rights and we talk about civil liberties, they have to constantly be fought for. <laughs> and if we're not careful and we're not keeping a close eye and and using our voices to ensure that things don't sneak up um, after people don't like election results, um, then that could can hurt our country. And so uh, we have to continue uh, speaking out. And I think the timing of Congress taking this up and hopefully getting it through the process is, is necessary. Yeah. So one of the things that the voting, the John Lewis voting rights act does is it doesn't, it like restores some of the things that have been removed, as we said. And the, the, the way things have happened is that since 1965 um, legislation and specifically like states have either enacted or begun to practice discriminatory behaviors regarding voting rights, everything from ID and voting ID laws to how they move polling places or how the polling hours, everything around how elections are conducted. And all of that stuff gets litigated, right? It gets taken to court, um, usually like the ACLU or the Southern Poverty Law Center or um, someone is involved in it when it gets to a high enough level. And they have to litigate that in the courts, which is time consuming and expensive, right? And if you are, if you're a state who is passing laws or enacting policies that disenfranchise people that have uh, less resources, right, especially money and access to those resources and connections, then it's harder for them to fight against it. And so what this would do is like right size some of that stuff, put those protections back in place up front so they don't have to be litigated against because we have all these cases that they've won to like fix the things that have happened, but we're having to do it case by case. And this would basically codify those rulings into law and saying up front, like you just can't do these things. The courts have been saying for decades, you can't do these things one by one. We're saying it now from Congress, stop doing it. It's illegal. And Andy, that would also clear up, you know, what is or isn't possible because if election results have to be overturned or something changes um, in result of 
litigation or different practices, that contributes to the narrative of it's unfair, the system's broken, there's there's fraud and cheating in the system, right? Anytime there's any changes or shifts in, in processes within the election. And so I think over time that creates that standard of equity as well um, to help ensure that we can rebuild trust in America's election systems. Right. Which is a particularly big deal in places like Oklahoma, where we have very low voter turnout. And when you ask people, a lot of folks that are registered that don't turn out to vote is because they feel like their vote doesn't matter because they feel like the system's already gamed against them, right? Or it's unduly difficult for them to vote. And this (laughs) goes right to that, right? All right. Well, so we're very excited. We'll pay attention to that over the next couple of weeks, listeners, and update you as it progresses. If you have feelings about it, I strongly encourage you to reach out to your member of Congress. Even if you don't think that they may vote the way that you want them to, that doesn't mean you shouldn't ask, right? And failing to ask is a no. You might as well ask. The worst they can do is say no. But also, you just don't want our elected leaders to have the ability to say that no one contacted me. I didn't know. And so we have to, one way of holding our elected leaders accountable is sharing where we stand on something and where we would like them to vote. So that way it can be on record that you did have constituents tell you that they wanted you to support X, Y, Z, or, or give you perspective on X issue. That's right. Decisions are made by those who show up and showing up includes phone calls and emails to your member of Congress or your statewide elected official. Well, and Andy, speaking of disenfranchisement on voting, I think this would be also a good segue to talk about the state level, um, the bill that would allow appointments (laughs) to um, congressional seats rather than calling for special election, because that's one way of getting around um, the will of the people in voting, in my opinion. That's right. So you're, you're referring to House Bill 2173 by Hilbert in the House and uh, Senator Taylor is the co-author, right? Or Yeah, that's right. They about, this is specifically dealing with what happens when Inhofe retires, right? I mean, I think it doesn't say that in the bill, but we all know that's what it's about, right? And so the bill, the the current process is that if a U.S. senator retires or dies in office or whatever, um, is removed from office for some kind of malfeasance, then there would be a special election, just like there is for any of the state house or state senate seats. And that's the way it's been for a while. And this bill would allow the governor to appoint someone to fill that position. And I guess what happens is the speaker of the house would give the governor three names and the governor picks one of those people, right? So it's like not just up to him as if they're not talking behind the scenes about like, oh, well, I want this person and, this, you know, like, but it, it's a two person uh, of conspiracy there, at least. Yeah, it puts it in law and, and creates the structure for those behind the scenes conversations to be actualized. Right. It streamlines that process to go around the voters to make the will of what the majority wants to happen. Right. As, as if their chosen person wouldn't win the election anyway. But I think this all gets to the, the reality, right? That likely Senator Inhofe ran for re-election last year because he didn't want to leave it as an open race where it's a Republican versus a Democrat. And the chances are the Republican, like that the, there would be a chance Republicans run a terrible, like hyper conservative for whatever reason, or, you know, a bad candidate and the Democrats win. Like Inhofe doesn't want to take that chance. Or it's a person that isn't going to further the agenda and the lens that he has set for the way that he governs. Right. Right. And so either way, it could be somebody who could win, but may not do the things that he thinks they should be doing. So Not not his chosen, you know, uh, Padawan learner there, right? And so this would allow them to handpick his successor, right? And so, but this is the way it's always been, right? At some point, it was, it was different. Like right now, the process is that we would have a special election. But you said you saw a tweet from Keith Gaddy. Yeah, so Keith Gaddy made a, a Facebook post that mentioned 
um, back in the 60s, he said 63 in particular, there was a governor that appointed himself to fill a vacancy. And so that's why the people said, no, we're going to vote on this thing. <laughs> and so now we're going back to a time that allows interest over the will of the people right. to make the decision of who should fill a, a role. And my biggest concern, because when you look at um, political positions, oftentimes, not always, because this is changing, um, but oftentimes incumbents have an advantage in a political race because they're able to build the relationships and the contacts and do the fundraising in roles. And so even if this is a, the person fills the role for two years and then there's an election, that's two years of them being able to be the sitting senator, right? Or the sitting member of Congress or whatever the, the scenario is. And so that creates a, a, a place that whoever's sitting there can potentially be the person who's elected over time to maintain that role in, you know, more than two decades in the way that, you know, our, our, our sitting senator has been serving since 1994, right? And so um, I, I would hope that the Senate would have a different point of view and not allow that to move through the process because it's still important for the people to weigh in to decide who that person is that should represent our state because that senator represents all 4 million of us. And we all should be able to at least have a say in who we want to fill a vacancy or to be able to, to serve us and not political interests. Yeah. I can't imagine this would go over well with a lot of the public, even Republicans, right? Generally when, uh, when politicians are like, you know what, I know you elect this position, but I would like to appoint the position instead. That doesn't go over well with Oklahomans. A very populous state, historically. Right. No, we would uh, we would like the dog catcher, right? Is often the joke. Like we have a ton of elected positions because the public doesn't um, trust politicians to do the right thing or hire the right people or appoint the right people. And so, what's funny about this too, given that history that Keith Getty shared, is that it has long been rumored that Governor Stitt was wanted to appoint himself to Inhofe's seat. And I, I wonder if this clause where the speaker would give him three names, I mean, I assume he could give him his own name as one of those names, right? Like, like what if Speaker McCall was like, you can appoint you or me or treat, like, <laughs> you know, pick one of the leaders. Um, I guess that's not illegal. It Would it be popular? No. Is it a good political decision? Probably not. Um, but it seems like it's still plausible. But you are right. Um, that it may not pass the Senate. And I've noticed that Senator Treat has been awfully quiet about these kinds of issues so far this session. Have you felt that too? I have. And another one that came up uh, along those same lines, it's actually one of the speaker's bills, um, deals with um, what we would do with our leftover money, our theoretical leftover money this year, right? So... Well, and to, before we, we explain that, like the Board of Equalization is the entity that looks at the tax receipts um, that the state has collected in from income tax collections and fees on different things and, and different services that the state provides and receives revenue from to give us a picture of what our legislature will have to work with as they build the budget for this fiscal year, because every year the legislature has to come together and decide a balanced budget. And so knowing what the budget projection is will tell them, do they have enough to allocate to agencies? Will they have to propose cuts or will they have enough to be able to put back in a rainy day fund? And so they rely on those estimates from the Board of Equalization to give them a framework of, of how much they may have to work with. And the Board of Equalization said that we have a, a, a pretty good picture this year in comparison to previous years, that there's more money that the state has collected than they originally expected. 
And so that gives the legislature the opportunity to do all kinds of things with, with the revenue, right? Well, and so part of the reason we have this extra money is because we didn't appropriate all the money that we could have last year because they knew last year was going to be shorter because the pandemic had just happened um, while they were meeting. And so they were like, okay, well, we probably shouldn't spend what we think we'll have to spend because we may not actually. You're on the forward think. Yeah, right. A surprising plan of planning ahead for our state government. And indeed, that's the case. And so now they're like, well, now we got extra money. Well, we only have extra money because we didn't spend the full amount before. And we, so we, we under budgeted, which is smart. Like we planned for less. Um, So it's not really extra money. We could, for example, return funding to where it was, or we could invest that money in core services that have been either habitually underfunded for years and years and years, or that have had their budgets cut over that time. Right. Because having more revenue doesn't equate to having adequate budgets and adequate services for people, right? Right. And so just because the revenue picture looks better than expected doesn't mean that need doesn't exist in the state. No, and it's an interesting thing. So there are a couple of things that have come out of this. Um, One is the idea of a potential tax credit of I think it's $1,400 for every family that has kids in school, like in, uh, you know, K through 12 school, they would give them, but that money would come out of not out of education funding, but out of the general revenue fund. So basically you wouldn't get a check. It's not like a stimulus check. It would be a tax credit. So you'd file your state income taxes. And if you had a child in school, then you get the credit, but it's a one credit regardless of how many kids you have in school, which raises some questions for me. And I haven't read it yet, but like I have two kids from a previous marriage and my, me and their mom each claim one. And so it's like, well, do we both get the credit then? Cause they're both in school, which would be beneficial to us because if they both, if she claimed both kids, then she would only get 1400. But if we can both claim it, we both get 1400 and then I could give her some of that money to help offset the additional expenses. And so that's, just like one of those little things where I was like, oh man, this may not be a well thought out plan by the state. And it's an assumption that only those who have children are the ones who have needs. So it leaves out the taxpayers who may be struggling because of the pandemic. Maybe they had hours cut at their job and they may not have children, or maybe they have a dependent that's not a child that they're having to help take care of. So they may have added expenses, but the state wouldn't be giving them relief as well. I think the state could think about something like the earned income tax credit that already exists Mm -hmm. (laughs) that would benefit a wider net of people and would be cheaper and faster tax relief that we know works and could also then help families. So I don't know why the legislature wants to recreate the will on that when we have other mechanisms that can help provide that tax relief. I'm going to guess it's because many of them have children in school, but they do not qualify for the EITC, right? Like they're like, hey, I would benefit from this. Um, And people I know, right? They could middle income, like, you know, middle class, um, upper middle class families that have kids in school would get $1,400 in tax credit. Um, but if you've got, you know, if you are, a, a, say, a single mom and you've got three kids that are all in school, right, then you would get $1,400. And that is likely less than what your benefit from the earned income tax credit would be. Um, so, yeah. Also, what if they use that money and gave teachers pay raises instead? Like if it's, you know, there's all these other things that it's like, well, we're still not really competitive in the region for teacher pay. That was a huge deal two years ago. Ain't no one talking about it right now. And teacher pay is only one facet of what the needs are in public education, right? Um, Support staff are are needed. There is more school counselors that are are needed per, you know, per child in in each school district. Um, School districts need 
support with facilities because there's this huge push across the country to get kids back in school, but the schools have to pay for ways to ensure that A, there's enough teachers to do it safely, um, B, to figure out how to make sure that the schools can be um, sanitized and um, implement the protocols that are really going to keep teachers and students safe, right? And so those things cost money. And there isn't conversation about how schools are going to be supported to continue all of those things, especially because those COVID resources aren't going to be there forever. So what are we going to do to ensure that schools can maintain their safety so that kids can go back to school five days a week. Right. And also this is one of those things where if they pass it now, it wouldn't go into effect until likely November 1st. I don't think there's an emergency clause on it, but even if it was, it wouldn't be effective in time for this year's taxes. So it would apply to your 2021 tax return that you will file next year in 2022, which means that will be revenue that the state does not collect next year, right? It's if you're getting tax money back, then it's money that you, I guess they collected now, but it would be additional money they won't have then. And who knows if we're going to need it then. And so this is one of those forward, it's forward thinking, but not in a good way. Well, and think about the election season incentive, right? So it's March, April, May, and people are getting these checks and refunds from tax season and fiscal year 22 and you're in primary season right. <laughs> and then you prepare to go into yeah i mean it's it's almost like the the donald trump signing his name on the stimulus check kind of ideas you know that the legislature can say look what we did we gave you money back in tax relief so aren't we so generous yeah <laughs> well, and related to that is um speaker mccall also has a bill that would basically phase out the corporate income tax over a five-year period, reduce it to zero so that corporations would pay no income tax to the state. And potentially, he was like, and maybe if there's money left over, we will give the regular folks a tiny reduction in the personal income tax rate. Which this goes back to when I first started Let's Fix This in 2016, because we had this stupid trigger bill uh, or trigger mechanism in our state income tax rates where if the economy grew, then the income tax rate would get cut, which makes sense if your economy is growing, you know, leaps and bounds. But we just had this <laughs> back then we'd had a financial crisis, the economy tanked, and then it got a little bit better. And they're like, oh, it's getting better. Let's cut the income tax rate. But we had dropped so much that it ended up shorting the state a billion dollars, right? Here we are again, coming on the heels of a pandemic that is still the consequences of which are still echoing through or rippling through our state economy. And when COVID goes away, it's still going to take time for the economy to rebound. Right, right. And the the way that things tend to affect Oklahoma, like we all know that, you know, uh, we're late to the party on everything. We get cool stuff two years late or five years late. We get bad stuff two to five years late too, right? And so it'll hit New York or California or Texas, and then eventually it'll ripple on down here. And so we may not feel the full effects of this economically for a couple of years. And so if we, oh, I don't know, cut off, you know, a hundred billion dollars a year or $300 billion a year, excuse me, a hundred million or $300 million a year in, in corporate income tax, then <laughs> that benefits, oh, some corporations doesn't necessarily benefit most Oklahomans and in fact hurts us because we've got less money then to do the same amount of stuff, right? Or to put in a rainy day fund to restore, right? Because we talked in the last episode yeah. about how we use some of those funds for a time when we were in a rainy day, right? And then we have a Medicaid expansion that we pass that we have to fund over time because for a while we'll have that 90% that the federal government will give to us, but that won't last forever. So we can be forward thinking about that versus making permanent cuts to revenue sources. I just, the idea that like, oh, Devin should pay less in corporate income taxes because 
because he speaker wants that to happen right he said it's to be competitive with texas which doesn't have a corporate income tax well texas doesn't have a personal income tax either and so governor Stitt's statement was like well we need more taxpayers not taxes it's like yes texas has like tens of millions of people more than oklahoma it is a much larger state with a lot more people so they have more taxpayers and if your goal is to get more taxpayers not more taxes like eliminating the corporate income tax rate isn't bringing people to Oklahoma. I've never heard anyone say the reason why our company moved to X state or Y area was because they didn't have a corporate income tax. Never heard that. And I mean, if if the idea is to have more taxpayers, not taxes, how can there be more corporate taxpayers if there isn't a mechanism for them to pay they're right. Here, right? Right. right. So right. we never see those dollars trickle down to the people as much as that conversation is constantly had that if we just get all these businesses to come to our state, then those monies will trickle down to, to everyone else. And that, that never happens. Right. And so I, I don't think that cutting a revenue source is going to be the silver bullet that rushes businesses to Oklahoma's areas of need. Right. It's not. Our state's uh, economic planning leaves something to be desired, at least for me. And it sounds like for you and probably lots of other Oklahomans. Call your state legislators too. While you're calling your Congress people about the For the People Act, call your state House Rep and state senator about <laughs> these budget bills. As we get into further down the road in the spring, I think these things will come up and be front and center. Oh, but also... We've not heard anything from Treat about this. I heard from the governor and the speaker, but I didn't see any comment from Senator Treat. So it may be that these bills are a bit of a platform for Speaker McCall. They they definitely could be just, you know, political ideas of lifting what things they would want to see over time versus what's going to actually happen. Um, That's the great thing about the system of governance we have of having two chambers and an executive branch that has to, you know, make the call on something is that just because people are in the same political affiliation doesn't mean they're going to have the same ideas and plans on what direction the state should move and what's going to be in the best interest of it. And so we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, over the course of time and the decisions that the legislature makes to ensure that our state budget can be sound and that, we're doing the things that ensure we'll be taken care of in the future. Yeah. Speaking of uh, checks and balances though, (laughs) house bill 1236 was heard yesterday morning, I believe. And it was (laughs) interesting to say the least. So this bill basically would allow the, it says that the state legislature if they believe that the president has issued an executive order or taken some kind of federal action that the Oklahoma state house believes is unconstitutional, that they can one ask the attorney attorney general to challenge it or take it to court, which is already the case. That's how it happens now. And then two, if the AG won't or doesn't, then the Oklahoma legislature could thereby rule and say that is yeah take a vote a majority vote and say that is unconstitutional or essentially we don't like this bill and we don't well we don't like this executive order that the president has done therefore oklahoma is not going to abide by it because a majority of oklahoma lawmakers don't like it right so this is uh this came out of the states rights committee, which we talked about a few weeks ago. I'm working on a sound effect for this. All I have so far is the sound of paper being torn, which I think is just the sound of our state of our U.S. Constitution just being ripped in half. I'm gonna add some kind of like oopsie or something to it, but it seems like this kind of legislation is just absurd. There was questions <laughs> during the debate that someone said, um, I think Representative Brewer asked um, Representative McBride, who was presenting the bill, well, what happens if there's federal funding attached to this executive order, right? Like, let's say President Biden issues an executive order to give all Americans $600 as COVID relief payments or something. And 
that people would have money and you don't think it's constitutional, would you still challenge it? Like, what are you going to do then? And they were like, well, you know, we'll look at each one and kind of see what we think. And it strikes me that they didn't have any problem, notably, with any of the executive orders that the previous administration issued, right? Which is plentiful. And the fact that, as I think Representative Virgin pointed out, we seem to only have a states' rights committee when there is a democratic president. Um, And so this, first of all, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but I think we all know that this doesn't pass muster, right? Like this has been established in the 10th amendment. This is already a thing um, that, and that's their cover, right? They're saying that, well, the constitution says that all powers that are not specifically given to the federal government are thereby given to the states. But there's also the supremacy clause in there that says, uh, yeah, but the federal government law overrides the state laws. And now you can you can go through the courts, yes, but you can't just be like, we don't like your rule, we're not gonna follow it. That can you is- imagine how much money we would spend over the next four years fighting any executive orders or policies at the federal level that the state didn't like that then were just upheld because it is clearly within the power of the federal executive to do those things, right? Like Oklahomans have to remember that there's a, our tax dollars pay every time our attorney general enters into any type of litigation. Well, and the thing is this bill doesn't really do anything, right? So like it, basically says, should the attorney general decline to pursue action based on the determination of the legislature, then the legislature may declare the action unconstitutional by the majority vote. But that, and it says notwithstanding any provision, then basically no one can implement any action that restricts a person's right or that the, that or the attorney general um, to be unconstitutional. Listen, just because you know a majority of the state legislature should happen to say, we believe this to be unconstitutional, doesn't make it unconstitutional, right? They could declare that the sky is green. It doesn't make the sky green. And so at best, this is grandstanding. At worst, it's a waste of time and money. And I guess it really at the worst, like it erodes the public's faith in our elected officials and our government as a institution. Absolutely. And I think a root of the legislature taking up some type of bill in this nature is related to the Standing Rock issue and the Keystone Pipeline that was being put in place. Somehow the legislature is making connection that President Biden wants to stifle oil and gas and hurt oil and gas jobs in Oklahoma, even though there was a story in like a almost like an op-ed in the in the journal record where a oil exec was saying that actually it's kind of a good thing that <laughs> this executive order is in place because that helps Oklahoma in these different ways, right? Um, it's it's still the optics that like this thing therefore will hurt Oklahoma somehow, even if there isn't a legitimate connection to make A plus B, right? Um, And then there's issues with the president restoring things that the previous president removed our country from. So like the Paris Climate Agreement and um, bringing us back with the United Nations. I mean, and you know, all those other kind of things that this president has done by executive order. They don't like those actions, but I don't understand what that means in terms of like this bill. So what does it mean if Oklahoma says, I don't like the fact that you stopped the Keystone pipeline. Are we going to send Oklahoma dollars to Canada to get that going again? Or, you know, or. (laughs) Yeah. So, I imagine, as we described earlier, this is one of those issues for members to campaign on next year to say, I passed a bill standing up to, you know, socialist Joe Biden and his unconstitutional executive orders, even if they don't actually challenge any of them, right? Or, you know, 
or it allows them to actually pass a, a you know a resolution saying we declared this measure to be unconstitutional and Oklahomans don't have to follow it, which <laughs> doesn't mean anything, right? Like it's not worth the paper it's printed on. So, but it'll be printed on some flyers and some mailers and uh, walk cards when they're out there campaigning. All right. Well, um, Bailey, as we wind down, I want to, I'd like to end on redistricting if that's okay. I think we've hit everything else on our agenda. So listeners, you know that I also run another organization called People Not Politicians, and we've been working actively about trying to end partisan gerrymandering in Oklahoma. Of course, our ballot initiative got waylaid and ultimately uh, defeated by COVID, if you will, um, last year. So the redistricting falls as it has in the past to the state legislature. They've been working on it. We've been working on it. And yesterday, both the House and the Senate redistricting committees had meetings and released some very important and helpful information. Um, They told us the timeline for what they're going to be doing and what data source they're going to be doing because the Census Bureau won't have redistricting data available until September. They said not before September, but they should have it by September 30th. So whether it's the 1st, the 15th, or the 29th, we don't know. But that's a long way off. And we have to have districts in place by... October, November, because candidates have to live in their district for six months before they file for office. They will file for office in April. So you got to count backwards. So it's kind of a, there's like a deadline there. Now there's, you know, some legal avenues. The courts could say everyone's grandfathered in or whatever, but um, people would like to know if (laughs) what district they live in so they can run for the appropriate district when they file. So the legislature announced that they will be using the 2015 to 2019 um, population estimates from the Census Bureau's American Communities Survey. Um, They do those and they average them in three-year and five-year increments. That's a good data source. It's probably more accurate than the census itself, to be honest. So that's a a good way to go about it. Um, That data is already available. I think think they only have 2015 through 2018 data, but it's out. Regardless, they've got most of it out there. And in fact, it is already loaded into websites like Dave's Redistricting, um, which is a free resource, a free website where you can go on and view and draw maps um, for redistricting. And in fact, the state legislature is both the House and Senate are signing agreements with Dave's so that that will be the website that we, the public, can submit maps for consideration. Uh, And so it's a good deal. So this coming Monday, which is just a few days away, um, they announced yesterday that Monday, there's going to be a training Monday night. So if you happen to listen to this between now and Monday, it'll be Monday at six. Um, There is a link on the Oklahoma House website. I'm pretty sure on the redistricting page. I will try to share it out from people, not politicians on Twitter and Facebook and probably on Let's Fix This as well. I think this is an important thing for one, because I watched, Dave's did a training a couple of months ago about redistricting just for everybody who's interested. And I was, I watched it um, on my iPad while I was whittling a spoon in the garage one day. And it was really great. It was super interesting. The website's about as easy to use as you can make this kind of thing. Um, So that's fascinating. The thing that is also worth noting, and I will end with this, is that while they will draw the House and Senate maps this spring, using that ACS population estimate data, they will still have to potentially, well, they'll have to come back in the fall for a special session and to to at least draw the congressional maps. And they may also need to tweak the state legislative maps. So that's a very important thing. So as with everything, with this whole redistricting effort, it's drawn out even longer now. And, um, that means we have to keep a very close eye for a lot longer. And then whenever they come back for special session, everybody gets a little bit nervous, right? So a special session call can be made by the legislature themselves or by the governor, but it has to be for a specific reason. And they can only pass legislation that is directly related to that reason or reasons. And so we will be paying attention, right? Because a lot can happen as we know in six months. And so at this time, we expect them to come back for probably, you know, five days or a week, 
pass these maps, get them out there and get on down the road. But there's always a chance something could go haywire. So that's where my brain will be. If you are listening to this and you're not already interested in redistricting and gerrymandering, you should be. Please go to peoplenotpoliticians.org and sign up. Your and representation matters. It sure does. I mean, this is really like a true framework of how things are done issue. It's a big deal. All right. Bailey, anything else you got for us this week? Well, one piece of good news is that um, thanks to the work of Cece and JB and Francie and Cherie and a slew of a whole lot of folks whose names we probably will never know, um, just many uh, community activists and leaders and faith leaders and others, um, Julius Jones will have a commutation hearing in March. And so that's another example of the value of leveraging your voice, even when it feels difficult or impossible, because so many people have come together and have organized around giving him that opportunity to be heard because there's questions about um, how the case was handled and his the folks advocating on his behalf believe that he was innocent. He's on death row. So he could be killed and executed by the state. And so this is a huge um, issue that happened this week, thanks to the work of local organizers. And so there's, there's power to the people when people use their power. So that's exactly right. That's a good note to end on. If there's ever been one, thank you so much, Bailey. Thanks for being here. Of course. Thank you. Andy. Listeners, thanks for being here as well. Uh, don't forget to take a look at our website. We've got a new kind of rebrand, refresh going on there. Look under the resources tab. Uh, if you click on get involved, there's a bunch of stuff there, including updated lists with all of the House and Senate members, phone numbers, emails, office numbers, executive assistants, Facebook and Twitter, if I've got it. I uh, still got to add some more of those, but a really great resource, very handy. And again, don't forget to check out peoplenotpoliticians.org. All right. Well, that's it. Decisions are made by those who show up. Have a good week, everybody. <laughs>